BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey everybody, Holden here. And I'm Jake. And we are so excited to tell you about the last podcast network, Country Jamboree in Nashville, Tennessee, at the historic Ryman Auditorium on June 18th. Holy shit, Jake, this is going to be amazing. Now I know what you're thinking, what is a Country Jamboree for a podcast network? Well, it's a (laughs) super show where literally all the shows from the last podcast network will be gracing the stage. We're talking the OG boys, last podcast on the left, page seven with uh, Holden McNeely, uh, Wizard and the Bruiser with also Holden McNeely, No Dogs in Space, Brighter Side, Fraudsters, a Someplace Underneath, The Story Must Be Told, Fraudsters, it's going to be an incredible <laughs> show, Fraudsters is definitely going to be there, it's going to be an incredible show, come check it out, again, that's Nashville, Tennessee, June 18th, Ryman Auditorium, Last Podcast Network, Country Jamboree, don't miss it! Tickets available now. I'm Holden McNeely, and I'm a bruiser. Have you ever been dragged <laughs> to the sidewalk and beaten till you pissed blood? <laughs> Wizard Jake Young, and uh, I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. I'm so happy to be doing this episode. Fucking friends, man. <laughs> Dude, Nick Cage fucking rules, bro. And I'm so happy we get to do an episode on him. Uh, I learned so much this week. And, Die! you know. I'm sorry. We're just going to scream. <laughs> uh, and I just, uh, I, I learned, you know, not only was it really eye opening hearing about his acting approach and his nouveau shamanic uh, acting style that he uh, created himself. Um, you know, it was also like reconfirming, like I didn't dream that he bought a dinosaur skull and had to return it <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, the backstory behind his tomb in uh, New Orleans, his pyramid tomb, you know, all of those things, just getting to kind of rehash and, and actually fully confirm those things and even have him uh, get asked about them in interviews and have him actually uh, confirm that he bought an octopus for thousands of dollars uh, at one point in his life and had two castles. Um, But also just seeing his, 
the the way it's kind of interesting because we just did Sonic the Hedgehog the movie. Bear with me here. Okay, okay Holden, I'm not gonna lie. I'm braced. I'm braced for what you're about <laughs> to throw down because well, I no, you have my attention. Well, I just obviously the Sonic's teeth thing. Uh, we talked a lot about how like the internet can have its own relationship with an a, a work of art or an artist or or a you know a product. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog the movie, the greatest work of art. I believe they have put it in the MoMA at this mm-hmm. point. But um, I, again, you have this other interesting case with Nicolas Cage and how, you know, he made a bunch of movies that were critically panned and he uh, made a lot of crazy choices in, in, in some, some very bizarre films. And um, over the years, then he also, you know, he had a lot of financial issues, which we'll talk about. And that kind of forced him into pumping out a lot of subpar kind of weird uh, uh, movies uh, for a while there and all this time the internet has just kind of had their own relationship with him I mean he's been literally turned into a meme with his crazy um, wide-eyed face in Vampire's Kiss and uh, you know and, and and also you know the master cuts of like Nick Cage freaking out on Are YouTube. You, Nick Cage losing his shit Nick Cage uh, yeah. freak out power hour we all know them with compilations totally and they're awesome and you know shed a lot of light on stuff like because you know maybe a lot of people in tw- the 2000s or the 2010s really probably haven't didn't know about Vampire's Kiss and they how certainly actually, didn't know like, about Deadfall I'll say that yeah. much <laughs> there is in terms of like actual like Nick Cage catches shit for stuff in that compilation that like yeah maybe 15,000 human beings saw in theaters <laughs> like totally and but I like love it's it's interesting and he I definitely have quotes too from him about like I mean his acting style almost makes you question like what acting even is mm-hmm. in a lot of ways you know and because it's so bizarre and his approach is so strange, but he has been able to become an Oscar award-winning actor. He's been able to become a the massive, one of the biggest uh, action film stars on the planet in the 90s. Uh, it's kind of incredible how, how wild and wonderful his career is. And his film legacy is going to be ridiculous by the end of it all. Uh, I think he wants to make like 150 movies or something like that. He, lately, he's been pumping out like four movies a year, mm-hmm. except for in 2020 because of pandemic. Like, it, it's it's really pretty wild. Like the the and how prolific his career is, and at the same time, how bizarre his approach is and what he is. There's something just you, you can't look away there's something that just draws you in as the viewer to the point now where there are i feel like there are cults of nick cage there are people dedicated to just uh being film connoisseurs of of just his movies and it's it's pretty amazing how unique he is and yet how much uh work you can consume of his and how fucking varied and it's so cool that he can make a movie like vampire's kiss where literally like you're screaming with laughter he's making so many insane choices and then go and make leaving las vegas and mm-hmm. and then go and make some uh, do a subtler performance like in pig you know and it's it's or just flat amazing. out doing a donald trump impression in color out of space just yeah. literally <laughs> saying fuck it i'm just going to do a trump impression well in the he channels of he was like he said in one quote he, for raising arizona he channeled woody woodpecker 
um, for, and he was channeling, he wanted to uh, do a Gumby voice for Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, no, he did po- He did the voice of Pokey. Or he did Pokey, yeah, he yeah, yeah, Pokey's rather, voice. and Peggy Sue Got you know, and just, I love, he's pick, he picks, and that makes so much sense, he picks, like, cartoon characters, because, like, what he does, his style, well, it's, and I love the phrase uh, Western either, Kabuki. He's for, either for a cartoon character, like a flat-out cartoon character, yeah. or he has this, like, weird default cage where he's, like, a man with a yeah. violent history with yes. a, who's trying to make good with, obviously, some with a daughter and ex-wife who is drawn in to circumstances that is demanding that he be bad while he tries to hold on to his honor and everything he's worked for to put his past behind him. Uh-huh. That he can do in his sleep. Yes. There are like 800 movies, half of them direct to well, he's great. He's got really good sad eyes. Is it? Is it like Sonic the Hedgehog where he just has gigantic yes. eyeballs and it's people exactly like ex- Sonic imprint the Hedgehog. themselves? <laughs> How many times can we bring up Sonic the Hedgehog the movie? I hope that's not the, the game Cage for this episode. episode. But also, much like Jim Carrey's performance as Dr. Robotnik, he can take these <laughs> wild Sweet. Well, we we have a Jim Carrey in. You kind of blew your load on that old, and we could have <laughs> brought it round anyway. There is a famous scene uh, in Community where Abed goes into a uh, frothing mess trying to settle the debate: Nicholas Cage, good or bad. And I think it is pretty much settled. He is a good actor. Oh yeah, he is a compelling movie star he is an avatar on screen with raw charisma and magnetism that you root for that you care about and yes he makes weird choices yeah but you know for every time that those weird choices uh like don't make for a good movie it still makes it watchable those movies where nick cage is like being a weirdo you're you know, stuff like uh, uh, The Wicker Man or something. Wicker Man, yeah, Vampire's Kiss, yeah. Without him doing what he's doing, it would just be forgotten to history. So, like, even when he's, like, doing it wrong, quote-unquote, he's still adding value. He still is this fascinating guy, and you don't really have that anymore. And I would make the argument that I would much rather see the movie with the guy in it making really weird, interesting, surprising choices than watching the actor in the movie who, like, wow, I I thought he was Abraham Lincoln. You know what I mean? Like, I would way, I'm way more interested. And that is where we get down to the debate of, like, what is acting actually? Because some would say it's it's being it's it's you know d- the person dissolving into the character like like losing themselves into a character and becoming this other person you know really good lying right and Nick Cage super hates that descriptor for acting and his whole thing is like he's like I'm a emotional vessel that is like bringing this big you know presence to every role and like do into and, and trying to like essentially it, uh, he you know the shamanic of nouveau shamanic is referring to shamans and tribes and how they would like interpret what was going on with the tribe into a performance to better communicate some kind of emotion or or um understanding about human nature to the tribe and and that is such a fascinating thing to me and you can totally roll your eyes at the phrase nouveau shamanic which is what he gave his acting term but actually if you break it down you're like wow that makes a lot of sense And it's brilliant. There's also this like weird kind of, I feel like Nick Cage as movie star, as like this guy that 
you know, used to carry movies. Like his name meant something. He would be on the poster. He would be the face. In uh, you know, in half the movies, you don't really think of Tom Hanks as like an original character in like most of his movies. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, Tom Hanks is in an alternate universe where he's stuck on an island or Tom Hanks is in an alternate universe right. where he owns a bookstore chain or Tom Hanks is in an alternate universe where he's doing a cloud atlas. And Nick Cage, in a lot of ways, has this he's continuity. Fucking a cloud atlas? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a, he's he's, a, he's doing a cloud atlas. <laughs> Weird. I got to see that movie. <laughs> in so many of these movies, like, uh, you know, he's supposed to be this tentpole everyman. That's kind of what made him an action star. And it just as movies kind of stopped being about that, as it started being more about franchises and crossovers and like reboots and remakes, he kind of fell out of favor. I guess we'll get into that part of his cycle, sure. but like he never got to be. Well, he did technically get to be Superman in the Teen Titans animated movie. Doesn't matter. Uh, but like he didn't get to be the Superman. He, you know, uh, Ghost Rider kind of like didn't work. Uh, National Treasure, they're they. You know, what didn't end up becoming a infinite part of the Disney canon and uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice flopped. And so he was kind of out in the wilderness, this kind of dinosaur of what a movie star was supposed to be. And, you know, uh, his his money management problems and the infinite punchlines, it just he just became this weird, tragic figure. And he's clawed his way back in a huge way with this with the unbearable weight of massive talent that's coming out. Uh, it'll be out by the time this episode comes out. The reviews so far are really positive. Mm-hmm. And when there's nothing left for him to like reboot or franchise or or multimedia, literally on the back of his own acting, he has become a franchise onto himself. Yeah, he's the Nick Cage cinematic universe for sure. In a way, in a way. And that's fascinating it's really cool it says a lot about where movies are it says a lot about you know where uh, the internet is where the internet is what what it means to be an actor he is this insane focal point for everything and anything having to do with movies and i think in a way despite his many uh, uh uh evocations of wanting to be an actor pure and simple I think he I think he likes being at the center of it all. I think he likes working. I think he likes being in front of the camera. And uh, you know, maybe Yeah, I think the only bummer is that like his he rendition wants, of Purple Rain, yeah, yeah you know, it was a kinda, little bit well, I actually was totally gonna reference that. Is that like he's become such a character online that the lines become blurred and like there wasn't supposed to be anybody filming that night and like he didn't want that video out there and he now kind of feels like he can't really go places uh much and do and express himself like in those ways in public uh anymore because of how much his status has kind of overtaken his life and and online and stuff like that and of course it'll go viral immediately him singing purple rain or getting kicked out of a hotel bar in vegas or whatever you know and uh don't forget getting arrested in new orleans and then having his his bail posted by dog the bounty hunter (laughs) (laughs) yeah so funny so you know it's 
it, it is interesting. And he's also, by the way, all those um, insane things happening. He's definitely the kind of guy who has to be working or he will just <laughs> implode his life, apparently. Like, if I, he is an idle hands dude. Like, he cannot be uh, in between gigs, which is, again, why he's putting out so many fucking movies, dude. It's ridiculous. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Nicholas Cage, uh, he was born Nicholas Kim Coppola in Long Beach, California. Uh, and that, yes, that is indeed the Coppola family name that uh, belongs to Francis Ford Coppola and, and his daughter, Sophia Coppola. Sophia Coppola, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's a part of that illustrious family. He refers to him as uncle. Uh, but he was not, uh, his family was not super super well to do. His father was a professor of literature, his mother a dancer and choreographer. Cage said, my childhood was extraordinary because of my parents. I was raised by a father who was a professor of arts and literature, and my mother was a modern dancer who has issues emotionally. Both aspects informed me. My father gave me an intellectual life. My mother gave me an emotional life, and the two worked very well in acting. Uh, by the way, those emotional issues he was referring to was a lifelong struggle his mother had with schizophrenia and severe depression. And when Nicholas Cage was just six years old, his mother was placed in a mental institution where she received electroshock therapy. Uh, Cage said sometimes she would go into Rip Van Winkle mode and forget everything that had happened, even when things got really bizarre. I was able to detach and look at it with a scientific curiosity. I'm sure it had some impact on me, though. Maybe her illness was behind the nightmares I had. Uh, and he also said that children of schizophrenics tend to become overachievers and become this super vigilant, overachiever type of personality. And I think his coping mechanism as well ended up feeding into his acting, his ability to detach and study the human condition in this way is tragically, I think, one of the early things that uh, brought him towards uh, becoming a professional actor. Uh, he's talked uh, in several interviews about the uh, trauma of going to the mental institution to visit his mom, the, just the hallways, the understanding that his family was different than others. Uh, he sought uh, escape through television, he talks about how his grandmother's Zenith TV mm. was a uh, deep comfort to him and that his overarching desire as a kid was to literally escape into the world of the television, yeah. which I think is one of the most uh, deeply uh, primordial driving forces for him, that he literally had to be an actor. He had to become a part of the world where everything was okay. And again, why he's a disaster when he's not working. I think it's a lot of stuff. I think that's all coping mechanisms to to kind of step away from dealing with a, like the, these big issues, which is which is sad, but um, leads to some really great work. His parents divorced when Cage was 12, and he was primarily raised by his dad, who was also, of, uh, as I mentioned before, Francis Ford Coppola's brother. And so when he would visit his uncle, he had a lot of inspiration to make it big in Hollywood. Cage said, we lived modestly. We were on the outskirts of Beverly Hills, right next to the Porsche dealer. I would take the bus to school, and some of the older boys were going to school in Maseratis and Ferraris. I felt that because of my name being Coppola, there was a misunderstanding as to what I did and didn't have. So it was frustrating for me because, like any other young man, I was interested in dating and wanting to be impressive, and I didn't know how to do that, taking a young lady out on the bus while the other guys were taking her out in Ferraris. But my uncle was very generous. I would visit him for summers, and those summers, I wanted to be him. I wanted to have the mansions. That was driving me. I mean, it is a huge uh, kind of... 
the Coppola family was always involved with the arts. There were musicians. Uh, there was, you know, literature professors. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, brother, August, Nick Cage's dad, was this, pr like, primal figure. I've, I've been using primal and primordial a lot. Foundational figure in Coppola's upbringing. He was the cool older brother that showed him around and looked out for him, even though he was five years older. And so much of Francis Ford Coppola's, like, work has to do with, like, this kind of fraternal order and this, like, relationship between men. Uh, and so, uh, you know, bringing in uh, August's, like, youngest kid, who by the time uh, Nick Cage's parents were divorced, he was pretty much the last one left in the house, uh, was this huge thing. And, yeah, the chip on his shoulder of going from this... Uh, broken home with a, a modest means and then being, you know, sent out to Napa Valley. At one point in his teen years, he's just sent out to live with the Coppolas at the height of Francis Ford Coppola's like dizzying, like, you know, new Hollywood it guy uh, fame is total whiplash for him. He cannot like deal with the weird just uh, inequality of outcomes that the universe provides. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely like... The TV is where everything is okay. My uncle makes the stuff on the TV and he lives a grand like perfect life. This is a, this right. is a this is a clusterfuck. And the and the deal is finally sealed for Nick Cage in terms of what he wants to do after seeing James Dean uh in the film East of Eden. Oh, and wait, that I, that portrayal was was what really convinced him to just like go for it. Uh he tells also this anecdote. I can't quite tell where it fits on the timeline because uh when his parents divorced and when he was going between LA and Napa Valley to be with his uncle at some point, he got sent to juvenile, uh, like, hall or, like, a juvenile school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some kind of delinquent program. Right. And supposedly, he says, because he uh, handed out egg salad sandwiches that had uh, fried crickets in them. Uh. Who knows? This was also in the same interview where he came on stage uh, doing karate kicks and throwing wads of money at the audience. <laughs> so I don't know. At one point, he pops his shirt off and gives it to the host. He was already a wild man. <laughs> But he said, I was a skinny little boy and I used to get, you know, beat up by the kids in the back of the bus. I remember <laughs> one day I dressed myself up as somebody else. I put on sunglasses and jeans and cowboy boots and I was chewing gum and had all this attitude. And I told them, I'm Nikki Coppola's cousin, Roy Richards, and I'm going to beat you up if you mess with Nikki again. And they believed it. And I think I knew then that I could make people believe I was somebody else, but I couldn't be threatening or intimidating as myself. That's so I had to funny. think of somebody else in order to get there. And this is, that is so such funny. a fucking foundation. Okay, this is one of the, it's, it's time for a fucking uh, thesis statement. All right, this, anecdote, this anecdote encapsulates <laughs> so much of Nick Cage because here's a scenario where he, if, I'm, if we believe him, uh, he dressed up in a leather jacket and jeans and boots and went up to a group of people who clearly <laughs> knew who he was. Right. And he was like, I'm not Nikki. I'm Roy Richards. Roy you see? Richards is and I'm going to give a you a real awesome goose egg name. if you fuck with my cousin who isn't me. <laughs> and they stopped fucking with him. Realistically, it's because that's a fucking crazy person thing to do. <laughs> that's fucking nuts. Nobody does that. You are clearly an unstable mind that you should not interact with if you are capable of such an outlandish, outside-the-box behavior. 
And walking away from that experience, Nick Cage, young Nicky Coppola was like, ah, yes, my acting is what got me through this. <laughs> and the rest of Nick Cage's career is him making these gonzo choices. And he gets the result he sought from that bizarre action. His movies are popular. He is well known. He is famous. He can command money for his movies. But it maybe it wasn't because of the quality of the acting and more just right. the insanity of the choice in the moment. Right, right. <laughs> I love it so much. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So Cage, uh, he ends up dropping out of high school to pursue acting, uh, and he actually changes his na last name to Cage from Coppola. Well, there's supposedly, supposedly, uh, he starts out as Nicky Coppola in a bunch of early roles. Uh, he was on this, like, PSA on the TV that from the creators of Laugh-In, where he was supposed to be this dumb jock who was like, hey, I don't know about this war in Nicaragua. Things might be pretty but tough. Um, and then uh, in weirdly uh, who's who of young movie stars, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he was still Nicky Coppola. But uh, according to Nick Cage, uh, Eric Stoltz, who was also in the movie, kept ragging on him for his last name. Mm. And uh, that apparently happened a lot of times in his earlier work as people were kind of like, you know, kind of aware that he was the nephew of uh, one of the most famous and popular directors of the era. Right. And it wasn't until uh, Valley Girl that uh, Nick Cage uh, booked it while I believe working on The Cotton Club, which he was, which was another Francis Ford Coppola movie. Uh -huh. And the, uh, the, one of the, you know, production assistants kept getting calls from uh, the producers of Valley Girl being like, hey, we need to find this Nick Cage guy. And they were like, there's no Nick Cage on set. And it turns out he had changed his name uh, and put his photo out there to try and get more roles. And uh, the director of Valley Girl actually had a connection with Francis Ford Coppola. So who knows how serendipitous it mm. is, but supposedly she... Uh, cast him not knowing his real name. I guess this is where we should first mention he's a big comic book fan. Uh, I think a lot of people know that about him. And so apparently this uh, last name change was inspired by Luke Cage, one of his favorite uh, superheroes in comics. And so, yeah, uh, his first film, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, uh, it was a small role, but it quickly leads 
to a leading role in 1983's Valley Girl, which is a lot of fun, by the way. That's a fun movie. Um, really gives you this 80s L.A. feel. Like, it kind of t- transports you back there. And, uh, yeah, he does Rumblefish for his uncle. Cage said, earlier in my career... I was very specific in my concept of who I wanted to be. I saw myself as the surrealist. This is going to sound pretentious, but I was, quote, trying to invent my own mythology, unquote, around myself, which is kind of amazing that he said that about what he was trying to do when he was younger because he literally created a mythology around himself uh, all these years later, essentially. He starred in a handful of flops uh, that uh, around this time, including Birdie, across from Matthew Modine, for which he lost a bunch of weight and had two teeth pulled. He admits Apparently. now. He admits now that those were impacted baby teeth that had to go out anyway. But that okay. the story did help his mythology. That is funny. All right, good. That makes a lot more sense because it's sad to think you would do that to yourself uh, for a flop. Uh, his uncle uh, Francis also cast him in the comedy uh, time travel movie Peggy Sue Got Married, and he reluctantly agreed as long as he could experiment a lot. Cage said. Uh, He said, just come to rehearsal. I said, look, I'll do it if you let me go really far out with the character. How far out? I want to talk like Pokey from The Gumby Show. So I went to rehearsal and everybody was rolling their eyes because I was talking uh, like, because I was talking like that. And my co-star Kathleen Turner was very upset because she wanted me to be Al, my character from Birdie. And instead she got Jerry Lewis on Psychedelia. Uh, Years later, Turner would write in her autobiography that Cage was, quote, arrested twice for drunk driving and I think for stealing a dog. He'd come across a chihuahua he liked and stuck it in his jacket. Cage then sued Turner for libel and slander and won a payout. Uh, But still, it gives you an idea of how he was when he was younger, which is like... Really incredible that he's like this young... A baby at this point, barely in his 20s. And yet he's going on sets and demanding that he be uh, able to make the choices he wants to make and giving these like wild performances and stuff, even at an early age when I would think one would be too intimidated to break out of the shell like that. Uh, But it's his run in the late 80s with Raising Arizona and Moonstruck that really puts him on the map as an actor who could hold down... Critically acclaimed films. I love him in Moonstruck. He's awesome in that movie. I ain't no freaking monument to justice. I lost my hand. I <laughs> lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. You want me to take my heartache, put it away, and forget it? Operatic performance. Literally holding <laughs> his wooden hand like a projecting opera fucking... Uh, uh, uh. Hey, babe. What do you call like a big time opera guy? Yeah, like a tenor, like a tenor. Like a tenor, indeed. And I mean, what can I even say about his performance in Raising Arizona? It's iconic. It's incredible. It's one of the best. If you haven't seen Raising Arizona, directed by the Coen brothers, do yourself a favor and watch that thing. I mean, he's really just immediately just operating on this wild level, and uh, and he just keeps keeps it going from there. And this is around... When he is creating this acting approach, he refers to as Nouveau Shamanic. Cage says, It allows me to be open to flashpoints that give you answers about how you want to play a scene. It's a matter of me being open to the idea that anything that I have experienced will give me something in an almost trance-like state where I can create something authentic that doesn't feel forced or even feel like acting. He developed this concept from a book he read called The Way of the Actor by Brian Bates. 
Cage said, I was really just recalling what I read in that, which is the notion that thousands of years ago, pre-Christian, for example, the medicine men or the tribal shamans weren't really act were, were were rather really actors. What they would do is they would act out whatever the issues were with the villagers at the at that time. They would act it out and try to find the answers or go into a trance or go into another dimension, which is really just the imagination, and try to pull back something that would reflect the cons uh, the concern of the group. The process is less based on recreating a different person's reality, like I said, like acting being really good lying, um, and instead more based in imagination and pushing the bounds of imagination. Cage said, the process itself is about how do you augment your imagination in a healthy way so that you can believe you're these characters. You don't feel like you're acting, you feel like you're being. Uh, and yeah, he doesn't even like the word acting so much. Cage said, Lawrence Olivier said, what is acting but lying and what is good acting but convincing lying? I don't want to look at acting that way. Why not experiment? And that's why I love so much, I think, and why I'm so drawn to his work uh, as a person with a comedic background is he's always working with the element of surprise. And comedy is fundamentally uh, based in the element of surprise uh, a lot of times. A lot of times people laugh just because the thing they didn't think would happen is now, now suddenly happening. And I think that's why I'm belly laughing watching Vampire's Kiss the other night because everything he does in that movie is like completely shocking <laughs> like and and just every choice is so interesting and i like that so much better and you know i think i think right now there's been a bit of a backlash to nincy method actors and i am I'm, I'm in that camp a bit too i, I mean it's, it's not so the method to, that's the problem it's the method resulting in terrible in the, uh, the craft services yeah the craft services guy having to refer to a man as abraham lincoln you know what i mean that's what with the eye rolly shit right or like the stuff you heard about now, Jared if it, Leto, i mean like, if it re- if it's daniel day lewis a rat you know what i mean if, if it's daniel day lewis people are okay with method acting he, if he's it's the Jared only Leto, one people are like eh. yeah it, he's the only one though who i feel like can really get away with it and then you hear these stories about yeah all the stuff with suicide squad of him like mailing a dead rat to his cast members as a present rolling himself around in a wheelchair for morbius it's the worst yeah i just think it just it gets so you know and and that's why i love this cages over here being like no it's not like i'm not trying to like become this other person i'm trying to like delve deep into myself connect emotion to imagination Mm. i think that is a way more interesting approach so it's interesting that like he gets his he gets his in through his uncle francis ford coppola who is at the height of like the 70s and 80s, New Hollywood kind of auteur kind of, uh, you know, this proof that like people want, you know, that, that there's this new there's this new voice in town, auteur driven movies. And Nicolas Cage gets his foot in there. But as we get into the 90s, things start to change. And by this point, uh, you know, his uncle, his supposed in to the industry, his legacy hire, you know, big sugar daddy has released Godfather part three and his star has like faded. His company is in trouble. He has financial issues like the 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 gleam, the untouchability of Francis Ford Coppola is tarnished by this point. And yet 
Cage endures. Yeah, Kate, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Vampire's Kiss because it's such a, uh, a big flashpoint in his career and then leading into leaving Las Vegas. Um, because Vampire's Kiss was kind of one of the first, like, m- the first sign of, like, oh, he makes these movies too. Like, he makes Moonstruck, incredibly critically acclaimed, and then also something like a Vampire's Kiss. Uh, he... he he uh, ended up taking the lead role in the small art film for almost no money uh, because, uh, you know, just he wanted to do it. Uh, director Robert Bierman uh, said, Cage said to me, the thing I hate most in the world are cockroaches. They are my room 101. So let me eat a cockroach. He wanted to eat the most frightening thing for him. I thought, this is terrific. I sent my prop people down into the boiler room. Cage said, I really wanted to do something that would shock the audience, something you would never forget. And I think that this is a great example of like, depending on the relationship he has with the director, some directors just let him do whatever. And Vampire's Kiss is that, that an he example is of that. Fiercely loyal to his directors. If he has a good experience working with someone, he will go out of his way to help them out on their other projects to the point where so many of his like eye rolly like missteps, especially in his later career, is him taking jobs with fallen directors that he at one point really respected and had and you know just doing them a favor even though it hurt his uh image and his reputation he genuinely does not forget a friend and the cool thing is with vampire's kiss over the years it becomes this huge cult classic and now people love that movie and i do too i hadn't actually i've had only seen like the master cut of all of his crazy scenes but like i watched it the other night and had so much fun and i was like of course this is this is getting rescreened now. I think at the midnight movie, like all the time. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's such a gem. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, uh, he moves on um, over to leaving Las Vegas. Oh, okay. Wait, the, uh, micro step in his career. Uh, Cage heads will refer to the kind of uh, in between Vampire's Kiss to leaving Las Vegas as his Sunshine era or the Sunshine yes, the trilogy. Sunshine trilogy, yeah. Because he starred in broad comedies like Honeymoon in Vegas, Guarding Tess, where he plays a Secret Service service agent who has to uh, uh, watch over a sassy Shirley MacLaine as a... Uh, as a old uh, former first lady, and uh, it can happen to you where he buys a lottery ticket promising to give half of it to a waitress if it wins in lieu of a tip. <laughs> he was also starring in Firebirds, which is just what if Top Gun, but with helicopters. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and he found himself kind of uh, creatively unfulfilled by these broad comedies, feeling unchallenged. And so when presented with the script for Leaving Las Vegas, he was immediately drawn to the script. I mean, it is, I had always wanted a good excuse to watch that movie because no one in the right mind generally goes, hey, you know what I want to do tonight? I want to watch a two-hour movie about a man drinking himself to death. But I finally got my excuse and preparing for this. This is the one role that he won an Oscar for uh, in, in his career. So what do you think is better for him, that he won the Oscar or that every uh, movie critic who thinks they're funny uh, has to be like Oscar award winner Nicolas Cage in, <laughs> uh, in Season of the Witch. 
I think he's so deserving of an Oscar uh, yeah. for for his body of work. Oh no, yeah, I'm no, saying it's... like in in the grand scheme of things, it's used as such a fucking like knife yeah. twist in any and all criticism. That's hilarious. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, I I mean, it is so good. It is such a haunting performance, and it's incredible to see you know to put those two movies up next to each other cuz they're s- closish in in time to each other between Leaving Las Vegas and Vampires cuz i mean the performance like i almost want to say the performance is subtle but there are some extravagant choices throughout the film but for the most part it's just this it's this so sad beautiful uh love story between him and um Elizabeth Shue's character and it is just haunting and like the way the editing is and everything, it's kind of puts you in the the world of a kind of a swirl of a drunken stupor, you know, and the way the music plays and repeats. And it, it's it's really, really good, incredible. And the film was written, the guy who wrote it uh, ended up in, taking his own life bef- right before it was optioned for a uh, film. Uh, the guy who wrote the book. Um, and so, you know, there was this feeling on set the whole time of like, this just haunted feeling the entire time. Cage said, I felt that because it was a short shoot, I could stay on the grill and just get this tunnel vision mode going and know that at the end of that tunnel, I would breathe again. When I work, I try to get into the meaning of the lives in such a way that I can see where the character is going or why he's doing this. So I found myself questioning death and its mystery. And he even said also, he made a comment of like, I like life. This was really difficult to... To um to get into the mind of a character that uh is you know just completely accepting their their fate in this way. I mean, it supposedly man, that he had so an good. actor uh follow him around who would get drunk for him so he could observe their mannerisms. He got mm. intoxicated and filmed or videotaped himself to see like what uh, ticks and what he could carry over into his performance. Uh, it was a very intense thing, and he did, in fact, win an Oscar for it. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. He's like, I know it's I know this is uh, corny to say it, but I just dig acting, man. <laughs> it's, it's a cute acceptance speech. And then right after he makes his Oscar award winning film performance, uh, he becomes the biggest action star uh, and the one of the biggest in the world during one might argue the best t- time in action films we've ever had in the 90s with uh, The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. The most notable, of course, being John Woo's uh, Face Off, uh, which is about him and John Travolta trading identities in a round of performances that are now considered legendary. Cage said, that movie was an interesting example of independent attitude and big studio filmmaking. And I think that is a great example, uh, or I think that is a great way to refer to the films where where Nicolas Cage is able to thrive the best. Uh, Independent attitude, big studio filmmaking and uh I, and also something i feel like the uh MCU would go on to adopt with the way that they hire directors for their films mm-hmm. and uh I, it is really brilliant there's a jail scene in which cage just goes off um yeah, i think we all know where he's like screaming his name um 
He later reflected that there was a moment in there where I think I actually left my body. I got scared. Am I acting or is this real? I can see it if it, uh, I can see it if I look at the movie. That one moment, it's in my eyes. Also, uh, he and John Travolta, he actually talked about this on his Reddit AMA that he recently did. Uh, he talked about how he and John Travolta would watch each other's dailies. The dailies are like the, the, the footage they get at the end of the day of shooting. You can watch it at the end. It's the dailies. He, uh, he would watch John Travolta his dailies every day to uh, learn the character. I was like, do they spend a lot of time together? Like, how do they do that? I mean, it's such a fun, it's such a ridiculous premise, and it's so such a fun acting exercise because of because of what the premise of the film is. Two things that we forgot to mention: uh, he turned for leaving Las Vegas. He turned down a role by his Peggy Sue Got Married co-star, Jim Carrey, to be in Dumb and Dumber. Mm. He was originally God, that he was so in, bizarre. He was asked to be in Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey. And he was like, nah, I'm gonna do this uh drinky sad Vegas movie. Uh <laughs> also at some point in the mix, uh, you know, just being a Hollywood young, cool guy, he told his close personal friend, musician Johnny Depp, that he should get into acting. Yeah. <laughs> it's also really interesting. The Rock Con Air and Face Off. Literally, it's Jerry Bruckheimer, it's Michael Bay, it's John Woo. All these, these are like the new wave of Hollywood that has kind of uh-huh. supplanted his uncle in terms of where the box office mojo is. Like mm-hmm. he has now completely overshadowed like any residual, you know, claim to his name. Nick Cage is a bigger name than Coppola at this point in the world, which is an amazing accomplishment. So at his peak, he had somewhere around $207 million, uh, especially once he became known for these action blockbusters. National Treasure is another one. Uh, Then the spending, it gets a little nuts. Uh, So... I guess, apparently, I don't know, I read, uh, he stated somewhere else the octopus didn't cost this much, but uh, and in the Forbes article I read, it said the octopus was $207,000. Two poisonous cobras that cost him $308,000. Cage said, they would try to hypnotize me by showing their backs, and then they'd lunge at me. They had a very interesting relationship with these cobras, apparently. Then there's the dinosaur skull. Cage said, the dinosaur skull was an unfortunate thing because I did spend $276,000 on that. I bought it at a legitimate auction and found out it was abducted from Mongolia illegally, and then I had to give it back. Of course, it should be awarded to its country of origin. But who knew? Who knew indeed, Nick Cage? Uh, so funny with that. The dinosaur skull is probably the craziest thing. Actually, no. The craziest thing is going to be in New Orleans for sure. At one point, he had 15 estates to his name, including two castles. That's a lot of castles. That's I feel like that's, that's a lot of castles. That's, that's for one guy to have multiple castles is a bit much. Two castles in Europe. He he uh, he scooped up those for somewhere around 11 million each. There's also two private islands. Uh, which is, again, a lot of islands uh, to own, and the Bahamas that he acquired. And he also bought the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans for $4.7 million. The home belonged to Madame Delphine LaLaurie, a prolific serial killer that was the basis of a season of American Horror Story. And the house is said to be the most ha- one of the most haunted spaces in the entire world world. Lori would torture and kill hundreds of her slaves often in her attic while a rousing party was happening downstairs as she was this like socialite by day fucking psycho murder lady by night. Um, And so legend has it that, okay, so let me preface this with, I am so excited to finally get to tell this story because this was like one of the funnest parts of my trip to New Orleans. 
I I also don't believe that the, this story holds a ton of weight because it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I'm going to tell you the story as it was told to me by the ghost tour walking tour lady. Okay. And again, I think I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. There's no way he wouldn't know about the fucking crazy history of this mansion uh, before purchasing it. So I'll just preface it with that. But apparently he gets this house, doesn't know what the deal with it, uh, doesn't know the deal around it. And he's, you know, obviously the house itself's crazy haunted and he's like having trouble like sleeping at night and stuff. He, he then has this, uh, suffers a career downfall. I think Ghost Rider was around this time. Uh, you know, a bunch of just flops came out. Uh, he's suffering a divorce as well. Um, he, I believe this was the Lisa Marie Presley divorce after only 108 days of marriage. And um, just just a lot of bad things are befalling him. You know, the financial problems we'll get into in a little bit, but he just believed in putting his money into property. Because once you become mega rich, you're going to get so much money taken away from you if you don't invest it in stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, well, I believe in property. I think land is the most important thing to get. So that's why a lot of reason why he got all these different estates and things. And then uh, that housing bubble happened to burst like at the worst time for him. So that is why everyone remembers the recession back around this time in like the mid to late 2000s. Subprime mortgages. You feeling nostalgic? Yeah, right. Ugh. You're trying to buy a home still at uh, into your late 30s. Some would say the bubble's still going, I'd say. But whatever. It's fine. We're a fun podcast about wacky <laughs> pop culture. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So his his everything's suffering. He's having this hard time. He's also noticing, again, this is according to the ghost walk lady. He's noticing these crowds out front of his house as a part of these walking tours. And he's like, oh, this must be like a celebrity sighting ah. thing. Like they found out that Nick Cage lives <laughs> in this house. So it's part of the tour. But he's like curious as to what they were saying when they were standing out front of his house. So according to this random lady that uh, did the walking tour that I was on, um, he dressed up in a disguise and he went on the tour that kept stopping in front of his house and comes to find out all these horrific, terrible things that has happened in the house by the previous owner, uh, L- uh, Madame LaLaurie or whatever. And so he's freaking out because he's like, 
oh my God, I think I'm cursed. Mm-hmm. And what what you do in New Orleans, if you feel you are cursed, you have to go to a voodoo priestess, which is what he does. And when he goes to visit this voodoo priestess, the priestess tells him to do a few things to lift the curse. And the most important one is to purchase a plot in the town's famous St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. And this resulted in the infamous Nick Cage Pyramid Tomb that sits there. Uh, it has a Latin phrase on it, Omnia Ab Uno, uh, written on it. This translates to everything from one. I have a picture of me, very sweaty, standing next to the tomb. That cemetery is awesome. And I will definitely say, so separate from the ghost walking tour, I took a tour of that cemetery. That's the cemetery. You can't film in that cemetery because of the film Easy Rider. That is where they shot the acid trip scene. Mm. It it has a bunch of really interesting historical tombs. And it's a cool, it's just so rich with history. And it's such a cool cemetery. Um, So check it out. But you also have that crazy pyramid tomb. There's not another tomb in that cemetery that looks like that. He's the only one with the weird as hell white pyramid (laughs) thing. And it just, it serves as another example of like how fascinating this guy is. So anyways, um, but yeah, in 2009, the IRS ends up going after him for not paying millions in taxes. He ends up trying to sue his business manager. There's a whole back and forth with that. And so, yeah, that's where we get to the era of Nick Cage that I think the internet kind of was picking up on as the internet had at that point finally been truly gaining steam Mm -hmm. as this uh, place where people talk about eccentric people like Nick Cage. And we're noticing he was making a lot of like, crazy often bad film choices it's interesting bangkok dangerous and sorcerer's apprentice well okay so he after face off he has an unfortunate run with uh snake eyes eight millimeter and bringing out the dead none of which are the kind of action-packed leading man uh you know fun times at the theater that I will say, bring out the dead. He does say it's it's that pig and leaving Las Vegas are his three favorite roles he's ever done. Well, Snake but Eyes yes, is directed by not- Brian De Palma. Eight uh, millimeters directed by Joel Schumacher, and Bring Out the Dead is directed by Martin Scorsese. Scorsese. He gets a chance yeah. to work with these insanely talented and visionary directors. It's just unfortunately during nadirs of all of their respective careers. So it's just an unfortunate thing. He makes Gone in sixty seconds. Uh, like, and that doesn't quite hit, uh, his production company, Saturn films, uh, isn't getting any real big hits with the life of David Gale. And although it's a great movie, shadow of the vampire, uh, he teams up again with John Woo, but instead of a cool, uh, Kung Fu, I'm sorry, gun Fu action movie, he makes wind talkers. Like it's, uh, he makes a go at like Oscar bait and it's captain Corelli's mandolin. And like all of this stuff is happening. And he's just not quite hitting it. He still has like miniature hits in the mix. Like uh, uh, everybody loved his performance in Matchstick Men by Ridley Scott. Uh-huh. He teamed up again with Bruckheimer to uh, make National Treasure, which made a ton of money. But, you know, you can only watch a trailer where he says, I have to steal the Declaration of Independence so many times before you're like, this seems silly. Uh, it's just, he, uh, he gets to work with, uh, Oliver Stone for World Trade Center. Like all of these things are happening and just none of them are the same kind of hits. He's not as bankable right. as he should be. Yeah. And, and terrible timing Yeah, because he's going, he's having all these money issues and an there's a sense of blood him, in the water. That's what I'm trying to yeah. get at. That people love a story of, uh, someone brought low 
and he is providing yeah. ample fodder for that. Oh, for sure. And but a cool thing about him was he's he was outspoken about he never ever wanted to have to claim bankruptcy. He always felt he could work his way out of any financial hole. Cage also said. Yeah, money is a factor. I'm going to be completely direct about that. There's no reason not to be. There are times when it's more of a factor than not. I still have to feel that whether or not the movie around me entirely works, I'll be able to deliver something and be fun to watch. But yes, it's no secret the mistakes have been made in my past and that I've had to try to correct. Financial mistakes happened with the real estate implosion that occurred in which the lion's share of everything I'd earned was pretty much eradicated. But one thing I wasn't going to do was file for bankruptcy. I had this pride thing where I wanted to work my way through anything, which was both good and bad. Not all the movies have been blue chip, but I've kept getting closer to my instrument. And maybe there's been some more supply than demand. But on the other hand, I'm a better man when I'm working. I have structure. I have a place to go. I don't want to sit around and drink my my ties and Dom Perignon and have mistakes in my personal life. I want to be on set. I want to be performing in any other business. Hard work is something to behold. Why not in film performance? Just kind of interesting. So he just, he's got to work. He, 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 <laughs> he acknowledges the mistakes he's made in his past, but all that time that he was pumping all this stuff out, he went from like punchline to, Heavily, you know, now we're going to get into the career resurgence, right? So at this point, Nick Cage is absolutely a punchline, and everyone's noticing he's putting a lot of schlock out, and that he's had some pretty, um, at, I'll be at times laughable financial choices. YouTube's <laughs> out by 2008. All of the compilations and all the clips from all the movies that, like, uh, were kind of brought together uh, out of context. So amongst the weird shit from, like, the Wicker Man and uh, and uh, what's what's other freak out movies? Deadfall and uh, Vampire's Kiss. There's also like when he flips the table and leaving Las Vegas, which is actually a truly emotionally rending scene. So and good. so like the good and the bad is all just flipped together into this like meme of him screaming all the time. Yeah, Ghost Rider. He got deep into the neo shamanic stuff. He would talk about like putting uh, Egyptian relics into his Ghost Rider costume. Like, yeah, he really was. He did become this larger than life punchline figure on the Internet at this exact time. He said for a while there, it was the three C's castles, comic books and cars. I just can't get that stuff off of me. And he also said there's a misperception, if you will, in critical response or even in Hollywood that I can only do exaggerated characters or what they would call over the top performances. Well, this is completely false. The internet has developed this thing about me, and I'm not even a computer guy, you know. I don't know why it is happening. I'm trying not to... Let me say this. I'm now of the mindset that when in Rome, if you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> so he's still this name. He's still this recognizable guy. He needs to work, but he can't command the same kind of paycheck that he used to, and his attempts at like kind of moving over into the big franchise guy hasn't quite worked out. And so, yeah, he's taking a lot of work. He's uh, doing a lot of stuff that goes straight to streaming before those kind of projects were even kind of uh, considered, uh, you know, doable. You know, The Rock and Gal Gadot didn't do Red Notice with Ryan uh -huh. Reynolds for Netflix by this point. It still had the stink of direct-to-video. And so he's kind of just got this weird, uh, just... His, his, he's just not the the movie star he used to be. But then, yeah, all of a sudden, 
a resurgence starts happening. And I mean, we're talking great films. They're not all bangers, but Color Out of Space, Mandy, Pig, and even big blockbuster stuff like Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, it's just creating, you know, there's all these new fans now that are just love his like master cuts of him screaming on YouTube that are now going out to the theater to see him in something like a Mandy, you know, and are like, I think there's this, it became like, I think for a while there it became cool. It was like cool to laugh at him. And then it something switched in the past like five years, it feels like really. Well, where it was it beca- literally it actually was five like, years ago where there was a subreddit dedicated to a religion based around him with him as their godhead. Yeah, yeah. It, but it, it it went from like, we're laughing. at it, It's kind of like all things, you know, it's like um, how I uh, started the Cowman as like a comedy band. And, you know, it always eventually just be, especially comedian-led bands, they always start that way, and then they just become actual. Oh, like, I just wanted to you're be You're talking about comedy band. rapper Childish Gambino. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think for Cage, it was like, oh, yeah, we, like, laugh at him. And then over the time, it's like, no, no, we genuinely think he's amazing. And, like, did you see Mandy? It's fucking awesome. Pig, awesome. And, you know, up to this point where, you know, the cult of personality is so huge that he's now in a film playing himself the unbear- and, uh, star- starring in the unbearable weight of massive talent. And, like, you really wouldn't have many people being offered a gig like that, you know, but he's just such he's such an incredible talent that uh, he he it makes sense. I don't question it at all when I get told he's playing himself in a film um, in a weird, you know, art bizarro movie uh cage said i'm at this point where i don't want to act it's not about putting things on it's about taking things off and trying to be as naked as i can be as a film presence i invite the entire spectrum shall we call it of feeling because that is my greatest resource as a film actor i need to be able to feel everything i mean mandy is a insane performance and i don't mean that like oh he's crazy i mean it is truly breathtaking he had just gotten divorced to his longtime wife there's like themes of loss and rage and the classic, you know, revenge story that he, so many of these movies, he kind of just, I talked about default cage where he's just a sad eyed guy that doesn't, that just has to do uh-huh. what needs to be done. But one like, last gig. Yeah. The movies like Joe, where, you know, he takes that character and actually makes it into a true performance. Uh, Mom and dad, which is an incredible a uh, horror film where a mind virus forces uh, parents to try and murder their own children uh, has insane soliloquies about like growing old and what it means to be a parent. Uh, the look up the pool table scene if you want to see just like how the this raw emotion and your awareness of Nick Cage like actually enhances it rather than takes you out of these movies. It's he's honed whatever it is he does into this finely crafted weapon and in capable hands it's it's what can be accomplished where you know outside of a billion dollars worth of cgi and reshoots is fucking amazing and uh nowadays he lives a much smaller life um he says, I have a tiny, and I do mean tiny, little cottage in Somerset near Glassbury, and I enjoy it that way. The magic of the green hills and trees and history. Then I have this other small lifestyle in Las Vegas. Also, too, he did uh, talk about how he was kind of bummed out about that Purple Rain video that leaked. Uh, it was uh, the anniversary of Prince's death, I believe, and he just kind of wanted to let that out, but he didn't want that to be a public moment. And I think he 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 likes the idea of, like, 
being very much in the shadows in his personal life. He doesn't even have a social media presence. Uh, you know, that that's another big part of it. I mean, he literally like doesn't <laughs> get the internet, you know what I mean? Like doesn't understand it. And I think that's so funny because I feel like he, he is the Nick Cage we have today in my mind, in large part because of how much, you know, traction he's had on the internet. With this all leading up though, to um, uh, a, as part of promotion, uh, as part of a promotional push for his new film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Cage finally interacted with the internet that helped to make him the star he is today by doing a Reddit AMA. This was super recent. He it was he was awesome on it. He he answered a lot of questions very genuinely uh, when asked, "What's the movie quote you hate most when strangers holler it at you in public?" He answered, "I don't have a problem with any of the quotes. I'm glad they remember the movie." And when asked, "Is there a performance of yours that the, you feel gets misunderstood by fans who turn it into a meme or gag?" This was his response. Well. Let's talk about the difference between meme and the word gag. My understanding is that meme represents a symbol of a pop cultural movement of sorts. A gag is somewhere in the realm of a diss, and I don't look at anything anymore as a diss. I see it more as a recognition of some sort of expression. I thought that was a really cool kind of way for him to really take take a positive spin on um, you know a lot of, at times, laughing at... And uh, it's just very cool to see, I think, all of that fade away and to just have a great uh, a lot of people having a great appreciation for him as a uh, a great artist. And uh, it was really cool, too, to see people on that Reddit Reddit AMA being like, wow, I like I walked away from this feeling like Nick Cage is now one of my favorite actors of all time. Like that was how cool he was. And how great he was the uh, anti Woody Harrelson on uh, AMA <laughs> the other day. And that was really cool. He's kind of like, you know, I mean, I think he's probably has some, some issues with drinking and stuff like that. Like he got kicked out of that Vegas uh, bar mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, and I just think, but I, I don't know, at the end of the day, like it, he is, you know, it's cool that he knows he just has to, he just never can stop working uh, or else he'll just, um, you know, he'll just become like a, a reckless, insane guy. <laughs> so. I want to just shout out the book, The Age of Cage by Keith Phipps, that uh, really helped put into perspective the entire uh, career of Nick Cage as a whole. And the fact is, is he has survived multiple movements in Hollywood. He has been acting for 40 years straight and has survived in a way that, you know, Eric Stoltz made fun of him for his last name. And was on the set of his first movie. And now who the fuck ever gives a shit about Eric Stoltz? <laughs> Mr. Didn't get into Back to the Future. Was so yeah, bad. Yeah, the only movie. thing I know about him. Yeah, he got replaced. And there really is, even at his low points, things of value there and things to learn from there and things that uh, you can you can glean from in a way that almost no other actor's uh, uh, filmography could. And it's... I, I, the world is a better place for him being in it. Um, he says that he's actually not going to watch The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent because the director and writer, Tom Gormican, uh, had a vision of him in his screenplay where he was more neurotic than he wants to be in his day-to-day life. Uh, he was told by Gormican, neurotic cage is the best cage. And so t- as an actor he followed his director where he wanted to go, but he does not think the movie is a good representation 
of mm. him as a person as he is now. Uh. That being said, I have, there's not been this much hype for an action comedy in quite some time. And if this brings him back into the AAA tier, it will be on the back of his own efforts and on his own choices, which I find fascinating. Uh, the last piece of news that got people hyped for uh, Nick Cage is that he was cast as Count Dracula himself in the upcoming Universal Pictures Renfield movie, which I feel like uh, is either going to put to rest or continue his curse as a outsider in the world of big franchise movies. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. I think that covers it. Our episode on Nicolas Cage. Thank you so much for joining us. I uh, hope you guys had, got, got some, had some fun, enjoyed some bees. And, you know, that uh, all scene that was stuff. cut from the movie. People didn't even understand, you know, they saw it in the <laughs> compilations thinking it was in the movie, but it was just off the DVD extras. So, like, oh, it's okay. not fair <laughs> that he should be known for that. And, you know, <laughs> him the and... Bees! They're in my eyes! They're in my eyes! <laughs> you bitches! Punches so many women and girls in that movie. It's very funny. Um, but anywho, uh, if you'd like to follow us further, support us further, check us out on Patreon.com. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew uh, for weekly bonus content at just $5 a month. For $15 a month, you can join us every Sunday for a Sunday study sesh. We recently watched Face Off, and it was a blast. So check us out over there on that. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Also, check me out on Twitch.tv forward slash Holden. Nader's Ho, twitch.tv forward slash Holden Nader's Ho. Uh, I stream Monday, Tuesday, Friday. Don't miss it. Yeah. Really got to press the flesh for that Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash whizbrew. Just go. It's fine. For only $5, you get all of our bonus episodes. Hours and hours of us talking about this exact kind of shit. Uh, if you've ever gotten to the end of an episode and been like, oh, I wish there was more, there's so much more. And it's all on the <laughs> Patreon. I guarantee you will find it amusing. We will fill the fucking void, man. Sorry, I got a little Nick Cage there for a second. <laughs> hey, follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung and check out YouTube.com slash PuppetJared, my little VTuber streamy project. Uh, Thursdays is the Cartoon Dumpster, a weekly deep dive into the most ill-fated, misbegotten all but forgotten cartoons of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's a good hang. I think you'll like it. Hell yeah, dude. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 